one right now, if you would, in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to use the one. Hopefully there's one in a chair rack in front of you. And you'll find our passage on page 1014. My name is Nate, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'd like to just remind all of you who I see every week, and also those of you that maybe this is the first time I've ever seen you, that uh, we as your shepherds, as your pastors, want to know you and care for you. And one of the key ways we can do that, sometimes there's not a lot we can do for your situation that you're in other than prayer. And that's not like other than this one little thing. It's a huge thing that we can do as we, as we go to battle for you, as we care for you and follow scripture to lift your needs up to the God of the universe. So uh, we want to get to know you and we want to pray for you. And you can email us pastors at orchardbible.org and you can fill out one of the little cards in the back and drop it in the offering box and that works well too. So uh, with that, if you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word before Rick comes to preach. We'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1 and let's read verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us where we can come together and consider your word, particularly as it relates to the subject of suffering and pain and grief in our lives, because Lord, we know you have an answer for that. So help us, Lord, today to be uh, those who see your answer, who can confidently work our way through this life, knowing that there's hope for all. For it's in Christ whom we pray, amen. Well, as you know, we began a study on 1 Peter just a few weeks ago, and we're in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 today. And as we go through 1 Peter, we see Peter writing to believers throughout the Roman Empire, primarily Gentiles, but Jewish as well. And he writes to them, and he deals with them in a great theological way, explaining to all of us the greatness of the faith we have, the living hope that we have in God. But then he very quickly turns to the subject of suffering. He turns to the issue that was undoubtedly driving the minds and thinking of so many of the first century believers around the world, and he talks about the one issue that is most challenging for us as believers, and that's to answer the question, why do we suffer in this life? After all, if we have a living hope and God is as great as we say he is, why doesn't God come into our life and relieve us of this pain, this grief, and this suffering that we endure in life? Now, the suffering that Peter is talking about here is not uh, because of the empire-wide persecution. That happens later. What Peter is talking about is the typical, normal circumstance of suffering that all of us go through. And so the question is, why doesn't God come to those he loves, those of us whom he loves? Why doesn't God come to us and relieve us of the pain and suffering in our life? 
So we're going to talk today and next week, finish up, this idea of suffering. And then two weeks from now, Bentley's going to speak on these verses again. Suffering is so important. We're going to spend three weeks talking about this idea of suffering and how we understand it and how we can answer its questions and how we can deal with it. So this week and next week, we're talking about this subject of suffering. And to do so, I want to begin by telling you a very personal story. And this is a story I've never told public, uh, publicly before. I've shared it privately in different circumstances and hopefully ways of helping others who undergo other types of pain in their life. But I'm going to tell you this story as a way of setting up uh, in some way this, this difficulty of suffering at multiple levels. At the one level, answering the question, can there really be a God that allows suffering? Does suffering and evil in this world prove that there is not a God. But then even to the more existential uh, level and personal, emotional level, how do we as believers deal with one another in our life? How do we deal with those who suffer? And so because we have two weeks, we'll go as far as we can in our outline. And frankly, I don't know how far we'll go. We may have to pick up with a lot of this next week, but we'll just see how uh, time plays out. So let me begin with this story. First of all, if I mention the date, April 20, 1999. How many of you recall the tragic events of that day? That, of course, is the day of Columbine. And on that day, Tuesday, uh, two students at Columbine, Claybold and Harris, we know, came to Columbine with an intent to kill as many of their classmates as they could. And so they put in duffel bags their guns and brought some propane tanks to use as bombs and other incendiary devices. And they came to school, they came to the cafeteria, the library, to kill as many of their classmates as they could. And we, even our own congregation, had people directly affected by the events that day. And on that day, they killed uh, 12 students and a teacher. 13 innocent people went to school that day and died at Columbine. And I remember that day, and you do as well, as that event unfolded on live TV, we saw students crawling out of the windows. We saw the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department doing the best they could to deal with the situation for which they had not really ever prepared. Uh, Law enforcement today has learned how to deal with this situation, but at that point, they were unknowing. They didn't know how to deal with it. On that day, those students died, and immediately in the aftermath of that, people began asking questions. Where was God at Columbine? Why didn't God prevent Columbine? How do we deal with this question of suffering in our life, and how can we answer the questions that this poses? Now, having said that, I can tell you that as tragic as Columbine was, in in my view, in my life, it was really only background noise to the circumstance that our family was going through. (coughs) Columbine happened on a Tuesday. On a Sunday, my sister-in-law, who was seven months pregnant, began feeling abdominal pains. And as she did... She called a doctor, and when you call a doctor and say, I'm seven months along and I have abdominal pains, the doctor says, well, that's to be expected. And so they blew her off for a number of weeks until this day that it became so painful, she was taken to the ER, checked in by a doctor who felt like there's something wrong here. And so they checked Barbara in. On Monday, they did an ultrasound and found that there was a a large mass in the liver, and the liver was enlarged. And so my mother called me and told me about this enlarged liver, and immediately she and I both knew that this is really bad news. Because, you see, Barbara had been diagnosed with melanoma cancer three years earlier. For three years, our family had hoped and prayed and asked God to deliver Barbara 
But that cancer was there, and you didn't know that. We thought maybe it would uh, go, maybe she would be clear of it. But now, three years after her first diagnosis, we understand now that there's a real problem. So on Monday, I decided to fly back to Denver to be here when they took the baby by C-section. The first ticket I get uh, was on Wednesday. And so now our family is dealing with this, hoping and praying that somehow the results will turn different, that God can intervene and save Barbara. But of course, Tuesday was Columbine. And I remember talking with my mom and others about Barbara's condition. The surgery, uh, the baby was supposed to be taken on Tuesday, and because of Columbine, they didn't. All the surgeons and hospitals in Denver were on hold, dealing only with the Columbine students. And so I was able to get back on Wednesday before my nephew would be born. And so that few days, I got back on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we're dealing with this, we're talking with doctors, finally... Columbine and the situation kind of settled down with those who are badly injured, some 24 people. And so on Saturday, Ronnie was born by C-section. And on that day, the 24th, we got word from the doctor. The surgeon came to us and said that when they opened up Barbara, they could see her liver was so filled with cancer that he could put his fist in her liver. It was all gone. Now, with that news, you know, you got to begin deal with a problem, right? And so for me... With enough experience in life, I know that when God decides to give you stage four cancer and he takes away your liver, there's only one result that comes out of that. I no longer have confidence that God is now going to heal you of that. Although in my brother's life, there were other believers who told him he would. And so we're praying for you and God can heal. And this is going on for these few days. But now I'm dealing with him explaining that, you know, at some point you got to learn to deal with where we're really at. And so over a few days, uh, soon after that, they put Barbara on morphine. And when that happened, uh, she's now unconscious in a coma. And basically within a few days was gone. So I went back to California where we lived. I was an attorney in California. My wife and kids came to Colorado to be here. And I went back to California for those couple of weeks that went by. And it was inevitable. But eventually we got down towards the first weeks of May and Barbara, it looked like, would be passing away any time. And, and from that first moment, you know, you're praying, God, please deliver her. On May 7th and 8th, we're praying, God, don't let her die on May 9th, which is Mother's Day. She survives until the 11th. And I remember early in the morning, Deanne called me and told me uh, she was going to call me when she died. I remember the phone rang early in the morning. And I knew immediately what the news was, right, that Barbara had died that moment. And, and so she passed. And I remember in that moment, maybe you've gone through something like this. And we as a congregation did not many months ago with the Williamsons when we lost Lydia. And we asked God questions. And I remember thinking about the grand sovereignty of God and his providence and his plan over the universe. I remember asking God, wondering, in what way would Barbara's life frustrate your grand plan of the universe? Why could you not answer this one prayer for us to spare her? How is your plan made better by us losing Barbara? By who are two girls who are six years old and four years old and a brand new infant losing their mother. This is the problem of pain, of suffering and evil that we all face. And we all have to learn somehow to answer the questions about what all this means. And so with that, we begin thinking about the problem of evil. Now, the problem of 
evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, all of this is a multidimensional sort of uh, question. And so this morning for the next few minutes, we'll talk about it in these different dimensions, working from the larger philosophical questions down to the more personal existential questions as it affects us in our own lives, even down to the very personal emotional component. How is it that we process the emotions of, of, of pain in this world, in this life? Because if you can't answer this question, if you don't deal with this question, either in your own life or prepare to deal with it in the lives of others, you'll find yourself out on, on the ocean of despair, not knowing where the life raft is. How can you be brought through these trying circumstances? So this whole question of the problem of evil is not a new question. In fact, you can go back to uh, Epicurus, the uh, Greek uh, 4th century BC philosopher who raised the question about whether God could exist because of evil in the world. And we'll talk about that. But even before Epicurus, you have Job who wrote about it. One of the oldest writings we have dealing with suffering comes from Job of the Old Testament. But other religions, other people have also asked the same questions. One of the first, um, more recent modern events that began the philosophical discussion anew was, of course, the Holocaust. At the end of World War II, when we learned that six million Jews had died in concentration camps, people asked the question, where is God in all of this? In fact, the story is told of one rabbi who is imprisoned at a concentration camp who died there, and he scribbled on the wall, when I stand face to face with God, he's going to have to ask for my forgiveness. You see, the problem of evil is so personal and so powerful that sometimes people wonder, can a good God really do this to us? And so I want us to think about this problem not just as a philosophical problem, but as a very real personal problem. And so we begin with this concept. Now, many great writers have written about it, many of them because they experience great evil in their own lives. You can begin with C.S. Lewis, who wrote powerfully about it in his book, The Problem of Pain and the Grief Observed, because the loss of his wife caused him now to feel the pain of what it must be to, to suffer a real personal hell, and others, as, as we'll see. So let's talk about the logical, the big philosophical problem of evil, all right? This is called the deductive argument against Christianity. And there's an atheist philosopher named H.L. Uh, Mackey who writes about this. He does not believe that the arguments for God's uh, existence are uh, a, a conclusive or persuasive. So Mackey would say that the arguments for God's existence are not persuasive. But he would say also that the argument against God's existence because of evil is conclusive and proves that there cannot be the God, that the biblical God of Christianity. And so that's the question we're answering. Now let me pose the problem. So think with me and follow with me as we kind of go through what the problem is. Because if you don't understand the problem, you don't understand the solution. Now let me give you this piece of advice. Most times in life, at work or in the family, too often we deal too long with the problem. People want to keep raising the problem. Once you have the problem identified, you want to work towards a solution. But if you don't identify the correct problem, you can't work towards a meaningful solution. So that's what we want to do. Now, the problem that we as Christians have, evangelical believers have, is because of our understanding of who God is. We think God, first of all, and we have three characteristics that are most important in this regard. The first is that God is 
omniscient, that God is all-knowing. The second is that God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And the third, that God is good. He's omnibenevolent. So if we take these three Christian understandings of who God is, we have a problem. The problem is this. If we believe God is all-knowing, then we believe that God knows how to bring an end to evil, but that he desires not to end evil and suffering and pain in our life. He doesn't want to. Or if we believe that God is all-powerful, we know that God has the power to end pain and suffering in our life, but he doesn't want to. Third, if we believe that God is all-good, then we know that God wants to end pain and suffering and evil in our world, but that he's either not powerful enough or he's not knowing enough, knowing how to end it. And so in believing in a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, we have a problem because then the argument is, is that no all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good God could coexist with evil. Therefore, because evil exists, therefore God does not exist. That's the deductive argument against God. Now, this argument's been dealt with in a number of ways. And this is really an argument that's heard primarily from the high levels of academia and your first-year philosophy majors at the universities who think they're really smart and know something now. And so that's who will give you these arguments. But let me just give you a few answers to that one argument, okay? The first is what Augustine would call the aesthetic argument. Augustine would say that, that the, 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 if you conceive of our life like a painting a painting in which at the center we see a lightness, a glow, whether it's a a landscape of some kind. But the, the lightness and the glow and the beauty, the focal point of the painting is only meaningful because of the dark edges around it. That's what focuses and shows us the beauty of the central point of the, the, the painting. And so Augustine offers this as sort of an aesthetic argument that really we can only know the glory and greatness of what God has done for us if we experience pain in this life. That's Augustine's argument. Another guy came along called Leibniz. Now, Leibniz talked about that this is the best of all possible worlds that God cre- uh, could create. And so if this is the best of all possible worlds, then that's what we have. Now, this raises a, another couple of questions we'll get to in just a moment. But another argument comes from uh, a guy named uh, Hick, John Hick, who talks about suffering and pain and evil being good for what he calls our soul making. In other words, it helps build character. It makes us more interesting and more meaningful in our human lives. And so Hick talks about soul making. Two others is Plantinga, who talks about the free will defense. And then John Feinberg, who we'll talk about in a moment, offers the integrity of human defense. These two I'm going to talk about in just a moment. But to understand it in an even more deep level, we have to understand different types of evil in the world. And so the discussion has always included both natural evil and also moral evil. Natural evil includes the circumstances beyond our control, earthquakes, tsunamis, and things like that. And the first event that began really an atheistic discussion in the modern world was the 1755 Lisbon earthquake that killed half of the people living in Lisbon and in Portugal that day. Half the people died. And the French philosopher Voltaire wrote about it in his book, The Candide, which is read by your high school students in high school. And in The Candide, 
Voltaire comes against this idea of Leibniz that there's a perfect world, that this is the best of all perfect worlds because Voltaire asks, how can this many people die be the best of all possible worlds? Couldn't a better world be one in which these people did not die? And so this is the argument. Now you can come from 1755, come forward. This is now uh, September of 2018. Do you know what happened 100 years ago this week? Tragedy 100 years ago this week was the great influenza of 1918. The great influenza of 1918 would kill between 50 to 100 million people worldwide would die because of the flu. They didn't know how to deal with it. And people died by this pandemic that killed so many people. And when that happened, the questions arose again. Where is God in all of this? You can come forward to the 2004 tsunami uh, of the Indian Ocean that killed two and a half, uh, 250,000 uh, people uh, around the, uh, the rim of the Indian Ocean. Or the 2010 earthquake in Haiti that killed 160,000 people. Why do these events happen and is there a solution? Well, the first answer that Plantinga gives is what's called the free will defense. And that says this, that God wanted to create a world in which we would have free will and we could choose. And the reason we need to choose is because moral action arises out of us choosing on our own, moral in our, on our own. Therefore, we can choose the right thing to do. That's how morality is built out of it. And so Plantinga offers this sort of a defense. Beyond that, a better defense, I think, is offered by John Feinberg. Now, John Feinberg was a professor of mine years ago. Uh, my one great claim to theology is that one day I had lunch with Feinberg, and, and I'm eating, and he, he's eating, and you know you're not supposed to talk while you're eating, but he was, and he threw down a Cheeto and began to choke. And not the kind of choking where you're just kind of breathing and coughing, but rather the kind of choking where you're not breathing. And so I went around, and I heimlicked him. He's a big barrel-chested guy, and I heimlicked him and saved his life. And since then, in 30 years since then, he's written dozens of books, very important books. And so I always felt like I should get some credit for the great work of John Feinberg in what he's done. Every book should end with a footnote. Thank you, Rick. But Feinberg envisions it this way. He said, God wanted to create humans the way he did. And you as a human have certain characteristics that are important to us. And so we can think of first the rational component, the reason we can think. And so reason is an important component of who we are. Emotions are an important component of who we are. We have emotions. If we didn't have emotions, if we couldn't laugh and couldn't cry, we'd be just like robots, not very interesting. So God gives us reason. He gives us emotions. He gives us a will so we can choose things in life. And because we have a will, we are able to choose what we desire, what is good, or choose evil. But God thought it's important that we have a will because if we don't have a will, then everything would be fatalistic and directed entirely by him. And so we have reason, emotions, and a will, but we have also desires. We have desires, and so God gives us desires. Now, desires in themselves are not evil, but desires uh, want, uh, are uh, the things that motivates us to one thing or another. And so there are things that we desire. Now, James in chapter 1 talks about the desires that are out of hand, out of control. And we have evil desires. We choose evil things. And the final thing we have is intentions. We are able, because of our reason and emotions, uh, able and our will, we're able to form intentions. And so we can act intentionally. And so what Feinberg says is God wanted to make humans this way because this is how God wants things to be. He wants to have creatures, have humans that have these components in their life. 
And with that then, there is the possibility of evil entering into the world. And, and of course, we see that it does. But this, we say, is the best of all possible worlds because God wanted us to be like this. Now, this deductive argument, theoretically, if it was proven uh, valid with, val- with uh, truthful uh, premises, would be conclusive proof against God's existence. Nearly every atheistic philosopher agrees that the deductive argument doesn't have any weight anymore. They don't rely on that anymore. They, they don't, it's, now, sometimes you'll see Dawkins and these other guys talk about it, but philosophically they know that it doesn't work because the free will defense or Feinberg's defense has answered that question. So you cannot prove that there is not a God because of evil in the world. That doesn't work. But there's even more personal problem, and that's what's called the inductive argument. The inductive argument simply looks at the totality of the evidence and asks whether it's plausible that there could be a God. So if you look at the evidence around us, the presence of evil in our lives and around us seems to count against the idea that there is a God. And the more evil, the stronger the argument against a God who would allow this to happen. And so that's the inductive argument. And this doesn't deal with the refutation specifically, but it, it, it deals more with the, uh, uh, the implausibility of there being a God. Now to that we have a couple of answers. And the first answer is this. That in our head we have a three and a half pound piece of meat called a brain. And with that we can think and we can reason. But do we really think with our brain we're able to answer all of the great questions about what God might be doing? Perhaps we just don't have enough information. Perhaps in our own fallenness, in our own finiteness, we just don't have all the answers. And so we can say that maybe there's not an answer that we have. We don't have the answer. So that's the first answer we might give is we just don't know. And sometimes we have to leave it at something like that. But then there's a second point we can make, and that is that if you look only at the problem of evil and focus only on that, you might say that there's arguments against the God who allow that to happen. But that's not the only information we do have. We do have our experience with the creation itself, the cosmological argument it's called, that there is a creator. The, the argument from design, that there's a designer to this creation. The moral argument that we, there's a sense within all of us that there has to be a moral lawgiver who is God. And so there's other background information we do have. And so the problem of evil in itself doesn't weigh against all of these other arguments, these other reasons we have to believe in God. But we can think also about a variety of other like theological sort of, of, of questions, of issues, uh, all of which kind of get to the nub of it. We know that there's sin in the world, that sin affects us, but we also know that there's an eternity. That past this life, there is hope. There is an eternity beyond this life that we live. And so we can look forward to that. We have to look at things on the grand scale of, of, of life. There's a story of a young man who, it's a true story, uh, I read about where a young guy was diagnosed with a, a disease and knew that his life would not go long. And when asked about it, his answer was, yes, I can be happy in this life because I know that this is not all there is. I can look beyond this life, my disease, and know that there's a God who will heal. And so for believers, we have that hope that this is not all there is. We have that as the inductive argument, and theologically we can answer it. Now we have the deductive, the inductive. Let's talk about the existential argument. 
which is to our person, to our own experience. I'm not talking about European existentialism or that. It's simply a point to say that in our own experience, in your own life, in your own hearts, we grieve. And we never know the problems, the difficulties that others are facing. We all uh, come together and we wear a happy face, but you never know where the person you just met is going through something unbearable. And they're looking for an answer, looking for hope. All of us go through this. So we understand this existential, this existential problem we have, the pain and suffering in our life. And so we have to deal with that. And we'll talk about that uh, next week as well. But then the final issue is the emotional argument. Think about the emotions that we go through. There's a lot of times in life where uh, the circumstances, the grief in life becomes so overwhelming that we feel like we'll never stop crying, we'll never stop grieving. And the pain that can cause us that sort of grief can be from many, many ways. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, the end of a marriage, all sorts of circumstances can bring that sort of grief in our life. We think about the emotional problems people have. We often think from the outside, well, let me go help them. So we do is we go up to them and tell them, well, you know, things happen for a reason or God works all things together for good, so it'll be all right or time heals all wounds. And we often offer these very pat, simple, simplistic sort of answers to people going through grief. And I was talking with Bentley moments ago about this sort of a thing. And, and it's, it's kind of like this analogy. You know, Bentley is an ER doctor. He, he sees people come into the ER and he patches them up. He works on them. And then after a while, the family arrives and wants to come visit, right? So what do they do? They come in and visit. Now, what Bentley doesn't want you to do is start poking around the wound, touching it yourself, fooling with it. Leave it alone. And sometimes when people go through real difficult circumstances, all they want you to do is come along and hold their hand and be with them through that. They don't need at that moment Plantinga's philosophical defense of the deductive argument. They don't need all of these sort of philosophical sort of uh, answers. What they need simply is your love, your compassion, your presence. That's the emotional dimension of evil, of pain, of suffering in our life. And that's what we want to talk about the rest of today and next week as well, is dealing with this emotional aspect, the emotional problems and difficulties we have in life. Now, let me just read a couple of verses to you. Uh, one I want to, to pick up on is from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 16, where Paul now writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And what Paul talks about here is reminding us of this light momentary affliction. Now, when Paul writes this, He, of course, as we know from our study of Acts, has been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, he's been jailed, imprisoned, he's suffered in so many ways with a thorn in the flesh, he describes, other diseases, undoubtedly very painful life. And he takes all of that and can call it a light momentary affliction. Why? Because he measures it against the eternal weight of God's glory, the promise of what God has given to us in eternity, the hope of all of that. 
And so for us as believers, as we deal with these questions, we know that we can answer the questions in a substantive way by saying that there is a God that offers us hope. And so although we weep and we let people grieve, we want people to grieve when times are suffering, we also know that we grieve not as those without hope. We grieve with those who do have hope and do have confidence in God. But as we come today, and in your outline I've given you uh, three questions, and we're going to do the best. Maybe we'll answer one or two of them. Some years ago, I did a study, and it's a 10-week it's a class I did on suffering, grief, and God, spiritual renewal through tough times. And I'm going to bring some of these next week for you if you want a copy of it. It's something of a 10-week study guide. We're going to compress it now to uh, an hour and a half, and uh, not today, but next week, um, and go through some of these sorts of issues, some of these questions. But the first question is, has God abandoned me in our times of need? When we think about people in times of need, we know that that life is painful, that life is difficult. Uh, Susan Kubler-Ross wrote a book years ago called Death and Dying, and you know kind of the stages of grief, and although psychologists have modified it in some ways and come up with different ways of analyzing it, it's generally true, I think. So let me give these to you briefly as sort of a a background uh, to this. First, she talks about denial. In times of great grief, when it comes upon you, you deny it. And I know that was our experience that first day that Barbara went in with the ultrasound. We thought, no, that, that can't be right. Maybe there's a, a, a false image of some kind on the, the, the imaging here. Maybe there's something else going on. We deny it. The second stage is anger. Often when we come to grips with our pain, anger can arise within us. When our own people suffer, we see them going through grief. But sometimes as time passes, we don't recognize that deep within their heart, they're now struggling with the question of anger. You know, angry at God, angry at others. Why does this happen? And then, of course, the third is bargaining. You know, if in this time, God, please get me out of this. If you do, I'll do this for you. Martin Luther's a famous story. When he was uh, terrified by a lightning storm, he prayed to St. Anne, deliver me from this lightning storm. I'll become a monk. And he was delivered, so he became a monk. But we often think of bargaining like that. God, if you save me from this, I'll do this for you. I'll stop sinning. I'll stop doing that. Please deliver me from it. So there's bargaining. Then there's the fourth and fifth, which is depression. And, and time passes and depression sets in and then acceptance. At some point down the road, we have to accept our, our new normal, our new circumstance. The difficulty with her uh, construction here is that it's not a nice, clean progression. You can go back and forth on these different steps and anger can surface years later even, even after you think you've reached the point of acceptance. These other points can come back on us. And so we have to deal with it in all these meaningful ways. So let's think about now a few questions. Has God abandoned us? Now that's a question that people ask. And I know as we were going through this circumstance with Barbara that my brother had questions. On the one hand, uh, the reality was facing him. On the other hand, he had uh, Christian friends who were saying that God heals. God will be there for you. And then she dies, and so that fosters the question, where was God? Did God abandon us? Why does this happen? Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 2 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Habakkuk could look to God and say, this is really bad, and I'm wondering, God, where you're at. Others of the scriptures have the same experience. So if this is your experience, you're not alone. Peter, of course, in chapter 1, verse 6 says, as we read, you have been grieved by various trials. 
All sorts of circumstances. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. You will go through the fiery trial. James says in chapter 1, verse 2, Count it joy, all my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. But we will go through trials. David in Psalm 66, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is trialed. You have brought us into the net. You have laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. David felt the pain of this life. So what is pain? What is the pain we're talking about? It can be any kind of sorrow of the human heart that comes to us, whether we understand it or not, whether we can comprehend it or not. Whatever it might be, that's the sort of pain we're talking about. So it can be physical. People come down with physical ailments and diseases. As our dear sister Pat passed away a few weeks ago, we we think and know the reality that death is coming. But we don't expect it to happen to young people, to children, but it does. The psychological pain that follows can be also very powerful in our lives. Why? The the guilt that can overwhelm us, uh, the sadness that can so uh, bury us. Disappointment in our parents, in our spouse, in our children. We have relationships that are often fractured and broken. And so these bring pain into our life, unmet goals or ambitions. You thought you'd be a different place at this point in your life. You thought you'd have more success, more money, more happiness, and you find out you don't have that. And so you feel this pain of this life, financial problems, difficulty, unemployment. What God does through all of this, we learn, is he doesn't insulate us from pain. What he can do is spiritually fortify us so we can endure it. And so we have to first sort of change our thinking and understand that we're not going to escape it, but we have to deal with it knowing that God can be there for us. Now, the one theological concept that's most powerful in this regard is to understand the sovereignty of God. God is a sovereign God that has control of the universe, authority, control over all things. We can't answer the question why God in his sovereignty allows pain to come into our life, but we can commit the pain in our life to his sovereignty and say, God, I don't know why I have this pain, but I'm going to leave it up to you to solve it. And he solves it for us, of course, as we know, in Christ. So the sovereignty of God includes his sovereignty over our suffering. And the truth is that God does not instantly alleviate the pain in our life. It's it's there. There's a lot of popular misconceptions about God. We see it in the wealth and health gospel. Lars talked about this a few weeks ago. We see it in this idea that God's there to alleviate our pain. When we need money, he's going to send it. When we have disease, he's going to heal us. When we get sick, it'll all be made well. And that's a sort of sentimental Christianity that sounds appealing until we face the realities of life. In your hymn books on page 358, I looked up a moment ago, there's a, a, a song there called God Will Take Care of You. It's a very uh, sentimental sort of song, God will take care of you. But the third stanza says, all you may need, he will provide. God will take care of you. Nothing you ask will be denied. God will take care of you. Really? (laughs) Nothing you ask will be denied? Like Barbara's life? Like Lydia? 
Nothing will be tonight, but we find it is. And so we have to grow out of that sentimental sort of Christianity that says that, uh, oh, it's just going to be happy. Even if you think your life is, you should know that the lives of the people around you is not. They endure suffering and difficulty. So God's plan is not to keep us comfortable or happy in this life. And so we know that there's disappointments that come to us. Job expressed his despair in life. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Moses endured this sort of suffering. He says to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Elijah, at the lowest moment of his life, says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah felt like there's no more point in living. Jeremiah, why is my pain unceasing, my wound uncurable, refusing to be healed? And then Habakkuk again, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? These are the pains we have, but we need to know that God does not abandon us. God doesn't abandon us in our grief. So we have to keep an earthly perspective, uh, uh, earthly life in perspective. We can't think that this is all there is, that there's nothing more than this. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. When Paul looks at the sufferings of this life, he says, it's bad. And I will never deny you your pain or your grief or your sadness or your anger. But try and keep it in an eternal perspective and know that there's hope. There's something more. So we have to also know that we can expect pain in this life. Uh, it's not, there's no promise that will be alleviated, that it will be gone. But what we can do is use the pain in our life to drive us to a greater confidence that there is a God who is there for us, who will heal us. A lot of times we can get hung up on this question about whether or not the evil in this life is an argument against God's existence. And if in, in the personal moments of grief and distress, you're dealing with somebody that's going through a very emotional problem, the answer to the question, why am I going through this, might be simply, I don't know. And that's all the answer you can give is, I don't know. I don't know. But we need to move beyond that and know that God does know. That there is a hope beyond this. And as we go through the pilgrimage of this life, with the pain that it brings us, with the suffering we endure, we know that there's one who suffered for us. And who brings us hope. And so we can look beyond this. And of course we know that God sent Christ to be that one who is the answer to our suffering. And when we answer the, when we're asked the question, why me, why this, why now, we can answer, I don't know, but the thing to do is to move beyond that, I don't know, to a different question. And that is, what's the answer? And the answer to a different question is, how is pain and suffering solved? It's solved by what Christ has done. And on the cross, he dies for us, he provides redemption for us, and brings to us the opportunity that we need to spend eternity with him in glory. And that gives us that eternal perspective and that eternal hope. And so, is God to blame? No. But we have to answer different questions 
What's the answer? Christ is the answer. God's the hope. And we have to look forward to that. Now, there's other questions we'll talk about next week that deal with these hard questions that people ask that you may be going through, that you may want answers to. We'll do the best we can looking biblically at these different issues, but we want today to just simply know that there is an answer that God has offered to us in Christ. Let's stand as we pray. Our Father, we know today that as we go through this life, great pain comes to us, pain beyond measure, pain we can't explain. We know that to be the problem of pain, but we know, know also the solution to pain is what you have offered to us in Christ, that there is hope of an eternity in which there is no pain, there is no more crying, there is no more grief, but there's only glory with you. So Lord, help us to be believers who live in light of all eternity. For it's in Christ's name we pray.